Speaking of reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Welcome to Speaking of Reliability. This is Fred Schenkelberg. And this is Chris Jackson and Fred and I were talking about the scenario we come across a lot where we need to be able to help our clients but influence them to make a decision um, or change something about what they do when they're not really naturally keen to do that despite what they say outwardly. Well, the, the one that caught my attention is you're talking about a situation and I'm sure it's not just this one time I've because I've seen it a number of times and it was a, a factory setting and you're doing some analysis to help them figure out a, a maintenance plan or frequency or, or some aspect like that. And you propose it to them. And they go, Oh no, 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 no. You don't understand. They'll never go for that because we're all about uptime. And if the philosophy is, will we just run it to failure and then deal with it after that? The precon I've run into this where the, the ops manager is, oh no, all your work and analysis is to make sure that we, when you do repairs, they're quicker. It's, you fix the speed of replacement uh, only. You don't touch the line. Right. <laughs> you know, you don't, you, you don't schedule us to go down, even if it's for an hour, because we could be running in a, as opposed yep. to looking at it in a bigger picture. So that's kind of the, right. one scenario, but there's many other scenarios where, it, um, no, you can't switch suppliers with the claim of best, same form, fit, and function because the last 15 times you've done this, 14 of them were really bad. So let's take a look at this. Oh, no, we don't have time for that. Okay. <laughs> it's like, I, I've run into those, but it's the same kind of scenario. It's the, they had, the team you're working with isn't seeing the forest for the trees kind of thing. Right. And it, Look, the, the, the scenario you're describing, in this case, it was simply let's optimise the servicing interval to try and optimise uh, or let, let's change the servicing interval to optimise the overall amount of uptime where right. in this case, servicing actually took a lot longer than the typical repair. Um, it, it's, a, it's quite a different sort of manufacturing process. And so as, as opposed to most scenarios where repairs are, um, consider considerably more expensive in terms of time and money. This is not the case, which mm -hmm. is quite rare, but how it is. And so I go, okay, well, this is going to be the servicing interval you need to adopt in order to maximize uptime. And the response was, oh, production will never go for that. You go, okay, well, why not? Because I want to maximize uptime. You go, okay, so we've hit an impasse. Um, <laughs> yeah. And... <laughs> I think one of the characteristics we I always see in those sorts of scenarios is that the data analysis or the analysis that that organization has been able to achieve in the past hasn't been satisfactory. Um, what I mean by that is there hasn't been they don't have the haven't had the ability to in the past look at all factors and essentially really relate things like preventive maintenance and corrective maintenance and preventive maintenance downtime and corrective maintenance downtime and um, the reliability curves and the rate of occurrence of phase and all that sort of stuff and say, aha, uh -huh, this means that the uptime looks like this. And so they have had to revert to gut feelings and, and some high-level metrics like uh, you'll our, see some our favorites. figures. That, <laughs> yeah. 
Right. So <laughs> some some will suggest, oh, you need to have a ratio of PM to CM of one to six. It's just a uh, that that's based on not a lot. Um, I'm sure for one organisation that did the analysis, that turned out to be correct. But every organisation is different, as you know. Yeah. Um, and so this organization was like so many others where they just never had the ability to be able to relate all these different levers they could pull with the metric they're interested in optimizing, which was uptime. Yep. Yeah. And it's, I mean, there's part of it is just, just this is the way we always do it. And this is, you know, it's just culture. This is what we do. Right. And there's parts of that. There's part resistance to change just in general. Uh, despite yep. all the data and all the in influence and everything else that you could apply is like, no, nah, we don't want to change. We, that's not proven. Well, it'll remain unproven until you try it <laughs> for your circumstance. Yeah. Um, then there's the, um, and I don't get this all that often is, well, we don't believe your analysis. Like that's, right. that doesn't align with my preconceived notion of what it should be uh, kind of stuff. And so they push back on that. Uh but the, the data analysis alone is often not enough. And I think that's that's the point, right? It's if you're right. working with a team or an organization that uh, is very happy just reacting to field problems or reacting to downing events and, and you know, I call it getting really good at being a fire department. <laughs> um, they they often miss the opportunity because they just don't have that the, the experience, just as you outlined, Chris, is the... Oh, well, if we actually took this in X, you know, X, Y, Z steps, we would have less of these events to have to go roll the fire trucks out for. And trying to convince them to see that, so, and, I, and there's all kinds of techniques that go around doing this kind of thing, but uh, I'm curious, you know, did you have a particular thing that helped them break through this or they'd fire the ops manager and fire, find somebody that was more <laughs> open or what? Well, we're still working on it, but the um, because the production team hasn't been approached yet because of the concern about that they mm -hmm. wouldn't take it seriously or would say they wouldn't go for it. And so what I'm in the process of doing right now is translating um, everything we've done into production uh, uh, production time. And what I mean by that essentially is pr produce a beautiful, pretty chart. Horizontal <laughs> axis is servicing interval. The vertical axis is production time. And say, here it is. Yeah. You no, I'm thinking this, this, is a, this is a management chart. There's going to be red, yellow, green things on it. And, no, no, know, no, very no, pretty. no. I, I hate, hate those. <laughs> I don't think they're pretty. I think they're... No, I'm just kidding. But when you said I have to make a pretty chart, um, nah. here's what you're doing now. Here's what, you nah. know, with the same kind of service that we have to do, but doing it on this interval, here's what you're going to get. Right. Very likely to get, you know. I can say, look, you, you, I mean, the good thing is the data goes out to uh, about 20 times what the optimal servicing interval appears to be. So I've got mm -hmm. good coverage of the data. Um, but just essentially put this chart together and say, look, if you're all about uptime, up then here's a chart. You can see it's about this figure here, but if you want to still do it over here, this is what it means. Yep. Go. And yeah. you, you can't really do too much more than that. Well, no, I disagree with that. I think presenting the data cleverly or cleanly or succinctly is not always convincing. 
Oh, I take, sorry, I do take your point. I mean, I, I mean, can't do too much more than that in terms of how you present the data. Then there's all things, sorts of things like uh, appearing credible when you tell the story. Um, all the other things I know you're about to launch, you know, I'm sorry, when I said there's not too much more you can do than that, I just meant in terms of how you present the outcomes of said data. Oh, yeah, no, but that's, I think, one of the fatal flaws of a lot of good reliability engineers is that we did a brilliant analysis, doesn't that speak for itself? And it goes, well. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, right. I, I concur. Right. So what other, I mean, I and you know I'm going to go into, well, there's, you know, find a champion, find somebody that the ops right. manager trusts and and you know get them on board and let them present it you know let have them do it uh yeah bring the data across to um uh, suss out what the the likely connect you know objections are and maybe there's some in intrinsic um motivation there maybe their you know their, their bonus is based on running for 23 hours a day and if you yep. take it down for two hours they lose their bonus you know kind of thing uh, or it could be that's the way they've always done it and they're just a curmudgeon and you know mm -hmm. come hell or high water it's not going to change well at which point why did you even start the, op the process um right. <laughs> you know this but it's um or you look for a compromise let's do a pilot let's run it you know this way we'll commit yeah. to it for a period of time and try it and really look at the data in your factory and see what happens and then you hope there's not a hurricane or earthquake or something <laughs> else that happens that screws it all up um, but yeah, there's the, but that's my main point is that, uh, if creating a change in an organization, changing the culture, especially, or even adopting a different technique, you know, a way of solving problems or improving uptime, for example, um, is often resisted, I guess is the better yeah. word for it. Yeah, and uh, another example we were also talking about is where I did some data analysis for another client who, um, in the previous project, uh, when I did the review, um, the data suggested that there were some manufacturing defects in certain components. Oh, and they were happy with that, if I remember that story, yeah. right? They were like, oh, that's cool. Yeah. We got somebody to blame. It's not us. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, they weren't quite that cynical, to be fair. Yeah. I, I've, I know which sort of client you're talking about, but... It really focused their ability to 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 then um, dive into to solve that problem, um, and so I had a second tranche of data from the same component, which was supposedly the remedied component, and they're expecting it to point to manufacturing defects again. And of course, when I do it, the data analysis is pretty clear. This is not a decreasing hazard rate or wear and anything else that usually points to things like manufacturing defects. Actually, had a constant hazard rate which usually means that it's being subjected to randomly occurring external events that when that system is exposed to, just fails instantly. I think, um, you know, well, and that's, accidents. When you, were, when you were describing it is you didn't know what the failure mechanism was. Here's this, the data know. set. And um, yeah, I, th I wanted to include that one in this one because I, I mentioned it. Because the way you phrased it was, and then the color just drained out of their face. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, because then it, it, the the next part of it was, I did the data analysis, and actually, it's a good case study uh, or good good example for what what you're talking about. Because they needed convincing. They said, "Yeah, but," several times. And they mm -hmm. said, "Yeah, but when we look at the failures, when we actually look at the mechanism, it's actually." 
plastic deformation so that the the strut has been pushed to a side it's it's been dense and i say and I, I said well just so you know i know you're expecting that to be indicative of quality issues but as a rule when you have a plastic deformation as you and i know it's usually one blunt force trauma event i think is the is what you called yeah yeah see so a single event that um Essentially, the component was get, getting punched in the face by that randomly occurring external stress. And, and yeah. what that means, if anyone is, 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 is listening to this stuff, sort of stuff for the first time, is there's usually, usually a mismatch between the design load and the expected usage profile. Somehow the customers are using this thing in a way that wasn't anticipated when the designers put it together. Well, that's what I think is part of it is the resistance. One of those yeah, buts you mentioned was, and this is one that you see all the time is, well, we're using a standard. It might not be exactly the standard for their new technology, but I've seen it where it was a, a wrist. I've told you this story before they were had a, yep. a wrist thing and they had advertising. You could wear it in the pool or the shower or wherever. And their intent was to make it water resistant. And they went to the, uh, a Swiss watch standard for water resistance, which meant you dunked it in three feet of water and if you wanted a one meter resistance and you swish it around for a few seconds and you pull it out, knock off the water, and if it's still working, it passes. Good to go. But they didn't include in the standard that um, moisture and corrosion take about a week to really cause havoc on a low voltage system. And, right. and then they ignored that all of those units failed a week later and they shipped and then it they all failed after a week of being used <laughs> or almost right. all of them. It was like 50,000 out of 70,000 failed within, uh, within two weeks of their initial sales and launch. And the, you know, the point is that their, their resistance was, and it sounded similar to one of the yeah, buts from these guys is, well, we're using a standard, the standard, it must be good. I says, well, let's, let's think about how, you know, Let's learn from that and then use that as the influence point going, yeah, yeah, but, but um, your customers are probably doing this in a different way or the failure mechanisms related to that standard are not the same ones that are occurring in your system. Um, and that's one of my bones of contention with standards is they usually don't list exactly what are they looking for? You know, what well, are they guarding against? What are they protecting you from? They don't that, say that, it, you say that's one of the year butts I got, which it was, and I can't go into too many details, but suffice to say, one of the year butts was, yeah, but it was complies with this standard, which is on the face of it, reads like a pretty robust standard. Uh, or, uh, or Oh, and I'm quite sure it has, you know, vibration and shock loads and all these other beautiful charts, and here's how you set up your test regime and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, so? <laughs> How's that relate to your use conditions? <laughs> right. The issue was is that you know, it's probably a fan, it could be a fantastic stand, standard, but its usage profile was not the same as yours. But that, and they'd said, well, its usage profile is more robust than ours. And then we go, ah, there you go. That's a, that's the issue. You, um, your usage profile, and I was able to rattle off three or four examples where the systems were going to be exposed to stresses that the usage profile implied in this standard would never account for. Right. 
always but this could happen or this could happen or this could happen and here are certain things where the actual physical characteristics of your system are outside of what you would expect for the system that this standard's catering towards um and i tried to use an analogy where you got to think like you're landing on the moon you tell everybody else you're a young startup company that are doing things that no one else has done before and you're actually doing very well because no one else is doing what you were doing so have that flow down to your engineering team. Say, look, we're doing something that no one else has done before, so we shouldn't be shocked when the pre-existing standards, which are based on what everybody else has been doing, not what you're doing, don't necessarily work. Yeah. You know, and it's a trap, I find. And it's, there's two th- aspects of it. One of them is they're looking for some industry guidance, something to shortcut their need to you know fully qualify and experiment and take a lot of time to understand is this system going to work and they're going into a market they don't have tons of field information about how people use their system because they hadn't sold one yet (laughs) you know there's there's a dilemma there with the the subtle change when you start saying well the standard doesn't apply you can confront them with all that business but it's a it's a approach it's um challenging their their belief you know, we counted right. on that. And, and now you're saying, well, that was a mistake. Well, it's, it's not a mistake. Lots of people do that. Yet it's stepping back in your process and saying, well, which part of the standard wouldn't necessarily apply? How, let's think this through. And then when confronted with hard data that says, hmm, that's not as robust as we thought it would be, something's different than we, that we need to take care of. Um, so it's still challenging that belief that that standard was good for them. Um, but it's, it, the part I get in trouble with is as a reliability engineer, we fall back on the data, the failure mechanisms, the evidence, the plenty of history of standards, just not being all that terribly useful for you. When we're really doing is trying to change their behavior. Let's think about how your system's going to fail and what's the use profiles of that. And what do we know and don't know? And let's examine where those risks are. As opposed to just say, oh, I'm going to pull standard XYZ up because that's been around for 10 years. Okay. Let's, let's, it's a little more nuanced, I think, than solving an individual problem. I think people will realize that once the data comes up and, but there's still resistance to it. But I think the, the approach to influence their behavior is that because they're going to pull out standards on the next generation. <laughs> They're going to be, they're going to add electronics and go, oh, we need a standard for that. Let's use the taxi standard for under the hood for cars. That's robust. And like, it's, it's robust, but it's for cars. (laughs) You know, it's, and you're making a widget that, you know, sits on a handlebar or whatever. It's not the same going over the same roads, but the shock profile is going to be completely different. Well, another example is if everyone's, anyone's used a photocopier, which I'm sure most of us have, mm-hmm. you've got the glass and you know where I'm going with this. Oh, I yeah, think. yeah. Um, this is a great story. The, the glass <laughs> is what? Three quarters of an inch thick or thicker. You go, yeah. why do they need what seems to be bulletproof glass for photocopiers? And the reason is um, Christmas parties because yeah. <laughs> Christmas when they first... When this they is first an Australian out, thing, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, no, it's not, no, it's not an Australian thing. Yeah, okay, it's okay. Just, just, not just an time. Australian thing. Yeah. But across the world, of course, uh, what was one of the... When the first... After the first generation of photocopiers were launched, apparently it just released a pandemic of people who wanted to photocopy their backsides. They yep. dropped their undergarments, sit on the photocopier, and... Um, photocopy 
what what's uh the, what the Lord gave them. Um, yeah. It's just and yeah, it's just bizarre. <laughs> some might say that office workers tend to lead more sedentary lives, and some might also say that there are some office uh, office workers who might be a little bit overweight. And of course, what happens when they photocopy their backsides? good portion of pe people fell through. And so what happens right now is essentially photocopier manufacturers manufacture photocopiers to withstand up to 350 pounds of blunt force trauma when uh, someone is doing this for whatever reason. Yep. Because what actually happened in practice is even though it was clearly being used outside what would be a reasonable use case, um, big off this company or office-based companies would simply claim it as a warranty action and the manufacturers knew that right but they, yeah. they knew what was happening but they couldn't prove it so they, yeah. said, they just bit the bullet and said you know what we have to cater for customers that are going to do this whether we like it or not it's not fair but it's just what we needed to do because we just cannot argue against it yeah. as as i understand when someone fell through the photocopier they tried not to tell anybody about it, and so yeah, <laughs> it was just a, oh, oh warranty. Yeah, it broke. Yeah, it must be in uh, uh, temperature fluctuation. Yeah, yeah, that was <laughs> that's it. right. Yeah, no, and then the I mean the other solution instead of putting a lot of glass on it, I have a little multi-purpose printer that has a copier on it. It just doesn't open enough. You can't right. use it as a step stool. <laughs> you know, it, yeah, it's. It, and it's pretty fragile plastic all around it. So I was like, I I don't think anybody would. Well, depends on the Christmas party, I guess. But yeah, true. yeah, but they make it so you just can't open it that far. You can slide right. a piece of paper in there, or maybe a book, but you—it's you, hard to put body parts on it. Right. Those, but those big pseudo-industrial photocopiers, yeah. which have to be able to, you know, open all the way so you can have big encyclopedic-like documents copied. Yeah. yeah well, no to, getting around it. Well, to be fair to the and I talked to part of that design team when I when I ran into them and, and they talked about this this story. It was um, to be fair, they actually thought through. Well, how you know this is a piece of glass that could break. What what's likely to be put on here? And they went to the library and got the biggest Oxford English dictionary they could find and dropped it right. on it. And they improved the mechanical to hold that load, which is nowhere near what a person would be loading Correct. it as. And so, I mean, but they were thinking, what would a rational person right. photocopy? And so they looked for stuff that could be copied, or, yeah. uh, but didn't think, and they were thinking paper. <laughs> and that yep. limited their view of it. Now, influencing the change with those folks oftentimes is one of the many, many skill sets that's outside of reliability engineering is facilitating, brainstorming, thinking outside the box. Uh, I think there's even one called Six Hats I heard about years ago. Yeah, thinking about Bonner. problems. Yeah, thinking about things in different ways. But it's one of those things that we need to think of as a reliability engineer is that the, oftentimes the, the way we frame problems, the way we think about things, the way we make assumptions about what's acceptable or not acceptable um, are all just indications that we're, we're dealing with something that has to change or should change. And there's going to be resistance to that from all quarters usually. Mm -hmm. And so the data itself is a starting point, but it's often not enough to actually make the difference. And so there's a lot more goes into it to, to make that happen. And as W. Edwards Deming once said, and I'll get the quote exactly right, change is not necessary, 
but survival is also not mandatory. So that's right. You uh, on on the one hand, you, data analysis, if you do it well, it usually doesn't doesn't misrepresent what's going on by definition. If you do it well, it can't. Right. Uh, if you do it properly, it can't. Um, so if you want to push against the data, push against the real world, again, change is not necessary and survival is not mandatory. <laughs> yeah. Good summary. So hopefully it's, uh, it, and we we're just scratching the surface on this, you know, how do you affect change and all that stuff. And there's, we've talked about it in the past, different techniques and processes and stuff, but it sure came up in our discussion today, a couple of things we were talking about. Let's, let's talk about that some more. Um, <laughs> That's good. So if, you know, you're listening to this and, and you're facing, you know, we've got compelling evidence, but nobody's listening <laughs> kind of thing, let us know. We'd help to give you a couple of ideas or pointers given mm-hmm. for your circumstance. I'll, I'll just send you the emails, Chris, so you can answer them. So I'm sure there'll be a flood coming in here. <laughs> All right. And then uh, everyone, everyone wins. Everybody wins. Right. And, and we get some more you know, interesting uh, scenarios that we could talk about on the show, all kinds of stuff. But if you'd like to ask us a question or a comment or provide some feedback, that's all welcome. You head over to ascendoreliability.com slash go slash SOR, and you can find a couple of ways to get in touch with us there. Chris and I, like all the hosts, are available through LinkedIn and through our about pages and dozen other ways, I'm sure, for each of us. Um, but we, it's an indication that we really do want to hear from you. Um, you know, it's not, we're talking about change and all that stuff. So if you want to send us a note to change the way I wrap up the, each episode, let me know. <laughs> I'm open right. to that because I'm getting, it sounds too rote. I got to do something different, but I'll work on that later. Maybe it's, maybe you're nailing it. Maybe that's, it's, uh, people love it. Who knows? I don't know. Yeah. It, we do get comments and responses and questions. So something about it's working. Um, but anyway, thanks so much, Chris. Talk to you soon. Likewise, Fred, always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Speaking of Reliability. We invite you to join the conversation if you have a question or a topic that you think we should discuss in a future show. Please let us know. You can find a comment box below the episode show notes or just leave a note as part of a review on iTunes.